So we are in the second week of a series called uh, Deconstructing Deconstruction, okay? Deconstructing Deconstruction. And the goal of this series is not only to primarily help and minister to you if you happen to be in a place where you are questioning some things or deconstructing your faith. That's a big term we're going to talk about. Um, that, but we don't assume that's everybody. We don't even assume that's the majority uh, of the folks here at our church, right? We assume, though, that, that because of the cultural trend that's happening with this, and I'm going to explain a lot about why it's happening so rapidly in our culture uh, today, we feel like you're going to be one or two relationships away from having to walk with someone through this. Does that make sense? So even if it's not you, or it hasn't been you, we feel like you're going to be probably one or two relationships away from somebody uh, that you are going to be walking through a, a deconstruction conversation. And our goal is to equip you. Our goal is to help you not memorize everything or just, you know, go see Pastor Matt, you know, like not do that, but really to be helpful, to understand where this comes from and where we're going and why it's happening and how people are doing it. And that's the goal of this series. All right. So let me give you a quick recap. I cannot go through all last week's stuff, but I will just touch on it briefly. Where are we? What is deconstruction? All right, this was a term that was labeled about 60 years ago, and it was primarily around philosophical and liter uh, 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 literary text in terms of how do you read and, and get things out of text, just this written material. Uh, but it's become a catch-all, right? It's become a catch-all phrase for people working through spiritual experiences. Uh, so here's my big definition of kind of all I've looked at um, for deconstruction of faith is any loosely defined set of approaches to a complete demolition of Christian belief, a critical reappraisal of one's faith tradition, or an honest acknowledgement of genuine doubt and questions. So really, it could be, any, we're going to use the same term it could be any of those things. A complete demolition of everything you ever known, believed, thought, raised in. It could be just dealing with questions, dealing with some doubts. But people are going to use that term, deconstruction, to kind of qualify uh, all of that. Here's our series verse. This is the verse that we're using for the series to help kind of guide us and direct us. This is from 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. This is not, don't think of approved as approved or denied, like denied salvation. This is not a salvation verse. This is to the church, to Christians saying, you know, there's effort on our part to do our best, right? To do the work that God's required of us, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, right? In terms of ashamed of what? Your salvation, of what you're working on, your faith. And he says, and how you do that is partly by ha rightly handling the word of truth. A big part of this work that's involved is rightly handling the word of God, the word of truth, as Paul describes it to Timothy. And I love this next part. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Another version that I love says foolish and worthless discussions, right? Avoid foolish and worthless discussions. Now, I know that's not anybody in this room, right? It's not you, but I know you're already thinking about who that is, right? You're thinking about who's online. You're thinking about the people in your family, like just foolish, worthless discussions. I know that comes up, but just, let's just pull back from the judgment. We're going we're gonna to walk through this. Um, last week, we introduced some of the building blocks uh, and, and in terms of deconstruction and the building blocks of our faith in terms of just a visual, and I hope this is helpful for you. 
the Word of God, and it looks a little different because we talked about the cornerstone last week, the cornerstone of our faith. And then building blocks is our theology, our doctrine, our practice, how we understand and view God, how we study and understand God, uh, the doctrine, which is our informed beliefs, meaning our convictions, our belief system, informed how? Informed by the Word of God. And the practices are the behaviors. It's the things we do. It's the way we live. It's the, it's the traditions of the church. It's the, the things that your parents told you were the do's and the don'ts and the shoulds and the shouldn'ts. You know, it's, it's those things in your life. And then, and then the Christian is who we are, right? That's, that's supposed to be our identity. And Christian comes from, uh, really was a negative phrase, little, little Christ is what they said uh, in terms of the Antioch church. They're the little Christ running around here. Um, and the Christians, it was derogatory, and the Christians went, yeah, that's us. You know, <laughs> We'll be little Jesuses. So they took that as a positive and said, yeah, sure, call us Christians. We'll, be, we'll identify as that. Now, when it comes to deconstruction, just to help you again, the average person when I say average, I'm just talking about the cultural Western, grew up in church, maybe Christian, or came to church, you know, got saved, whatever the case is. Most of their deconstruction only ever usually focuses on practice, okay? And I'll tell you why in a minute, but, but it's mainly practice, meaning that how they were raised, maybe their faith traditions, maybe the shoulds and shouldn'ts from grandma and grandpa and mom and dad, like you just felt differently, you were raised differently, and, and you, you kind of went back and questioned some of those things, and then you decided to change it. You decided to reconstruct something else. So a lot of times that what this looks like, it's again, because you're just a part of a religious system, that's how it's necessarily viewed, uh, how what this looks like is you're primarily like, you see a lot of Catholic people will eventually show up at a Protestant church, you know? And then, you know, we're playing music loud, and we're having fun, and you know, Catholics are like, man, this is amazing, right? I never got to have any fun in the Catholic Church, you know? Um, it, it's a lot of times people who are maybe in the Presbyterian or Lutheran denomination show up at a charismatic church, right, where the spirit's running free, free and people are grabbing tambourines and running the aisles and all sorts of things. I don't know. I've never been to a charismatic church. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, they just love the fact that it's a different expression. It's like, wow, I never experienced God like this before. And so a lot of times people average, on average, they just view religious deconstruction as a, as a going back to how it's lived out, how it's seen. Primarily because they don't really know why the, they believe what they believe. They don't really understand and study the idea of how to see God properly because there's really not a whole lot of the Word of God building that foundation. Does that make sense? So on average, most people that are going through deconstruction, it's not some super, super huge thing, but a lot of times it's just they go back to the practice and they start going, well, you know, I don't like that. Let's try this. I don't like this. Let's try that. When you get to a much bigger understanding, especially when it comes to people changing everything about what they believe, a lot of time that's driven by other things. And last week I shared this top five with you, and today I told you we we're going to do a whole day just on this. But it doesn't mean that all these things don't also fuel it. Sometimes conformity over unity, uh, burnout of, of, of purpose and who we are, um, sometimes it's the legalistic disunity or the, you know, I say one thing, but I live another way. I'm so tired of the hypocrisy. Uh, sometimes it's institutional hurt, church hurt, uh, Christian family hurt. Um, could be God in your mind has disappointed you. It could be a lot of those things. And so you experience kind of a painful uh, faith experience. And then there's social ideology. And I, I told you last week, it's very hard to explain social ideology. 
and how it really does affect this conversation. But man, today my goal is to break this down for you. It's a lot of information up front. I'm just going to let you know. But I believe it's one of the most impactful things that's happening in our country and in our culture in terms of what is changing for Christianity because of our deconstruction and the, and the role that social ideology plays. Now, social ideology can't be talked about if we don't also talk about uh, expressive individualism. Okay? Now, I know this is a lot of terms. You guys did not talk about this at coffee on Friday, right? I get that. Expressive individualism is, I'm going to share it with you, that is a term that most philosophical and psychological uh, people are using and terming as our current expressive culture of expressive individualism in terms of how we are living. Social ideology is part of that, but this conversation is a little bit of the chicken and the egg conversation, okay? Because we don't know, people are arguing whether does, social, does expressive individualism create a social ideology, or does the social ideology, the sort of collective grouping of, of beliefs and ideas, does that create expressive individualism? Well, I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, but it's, it's the current argument that people are having on the surface. And so what I want to do today is talk about two primary things. One is, how did we get to where we are in terms of expressive individualism? And what role does that play in terms of social ideology and how a lot of people are deconstructing their faith in a very tragic way that is leading them away from God, but under the veil of faith, under the veil and, and the shroud of, of still kind of claiming the same faith that we have. And so that's what I want to walk through today. Again, I'm going to give you a lot of information. If I find tools that are helpful to me, oftentimes I will do my very best to give them to you. Um, there's a tool I'm getting ready to give you called the Who Am I Timeline. Um, I first saw this this year and it's something that I've looked at, at several things kind of piecing together, so my study isn't extensive. But Dr. Ben Young, he's in Texas, a pastor, a theologian, and author. Um, and he did incredible research. So we're just going to kind of like walk you through some of his time on the research. You can study all this on your own, okay? If you want to put some effort into it, a little elbow grease, go for it. But I'm going to give you what I thought was a very helpful, quick timeline and tool as to how we are where we are in terms of this, this idea of expressive individualism, all right? It's all in the answer to the question, who am I? It's how we answer the question. And what he does is he brought, breaks it down into some timelines. Now, he starts in 400 BC with Plato as a primary example. Um, now, you could use anybody, Aretes, uh, uh, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, all that kind of thing. These were the philosophers of their day, and it was, the, it was the changing of the tide, if you guys remember your history, it was the changing of the tide from more barbaric, nomadic societies into more what we would call civilized societies. Now, it doesn't mean they weren't still barbaric, or, you know, or, but it was, it was a big shift from what we saw in the Old Testament of you know, cultures and nomadic cultures. Like it, was, it was a pretty big shift in terms of societies and cities, and you know, uh, that was after the... Um, uh, Alexander the Great really kind of kicked this off, uh, and the Roman Empire as well. So this is the timeline, and there was a common belief, a common belief that 
In terms of answering the question, who am I? Even Plato would say, well, there's a God or a deity, if you will. Not all of them, we're not saying these people were Christians, but there's an external voice, a creator. And in order to understand who I am, I have to understand who they are. So they're up to this point, and in this kind of big timeline of the next 2,000 years, as, the, as empires continue to build, uh, you know, and civilizations gather, there's going to be a, a given. A given doesn't matter if it's the pantheon of Greek gods, Roman gods, across the board. It was the idea that, well, if I want to answer the question who I am, it, I have to know who he is or who they are, because there was an, a baseline understanding that that was how we understood ourselves. So God is, this is the Christian, the Christian response, God is, therefore I am. And that's how we understand it. Now, the next timeline, I'm going to rapidly walk through a couple centuries. The next timeline, it was a big shift. And it happened after the Reformation and after the Renaissance era. And it was considered the building of empires. This is where the Western Empire started to grow and to build in terms of civilization. There are three people I'll mention very quickly. Rene Descartes was a French philosopher. And he was the one, he, he kind of, <laughs> he was in a search for certainty, okay? So, so what did he do? Well, he just questioned everything, right? Is this it? Is this air in my breathing? Is this water in my face? Is this a table? Is this, you know, he just questioned everything. And his truism, if you will, comes out to be the only thing he can be certain of is this. <laughs> the only thing that he can be certain of is that I, I'm a thinking individual, that I have a brain and I have thoughts and I have, you know, the only thing I can be certain of, and he actually is the first one that coined the phrase, I think, therefore, what? Right, I think, therefore, I am. And that was a really big shift in culture. Next hundred years, 1700, this is, again, rough dates. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he was a Swiss philosopher, and he wrote, one of the big famous things he wrote was called The Social Contract. And his, his idea and this is, comes from the social contract, is that we are born free and everywhere is chains. Okay? We're born free and everywhere is chains, meaning that, that not just we think, therefore we are, certainty, we're born free and everywhere else is chains, meaning religion, political parties, governments, kings, you know, ruler, like everything else is a problem, but we ourselves are, are naturally or internally free. And then a little bit later on, the German philosopher, uh, Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto and several other things, he took it even a step farther in terms of Descartes' work, not just I think, therefore I am, but in terms of certainty, he wanted to classify groups. And he came up with two primary groups. You had the oppressed and you had the oppressor, right? You had those in power and you had those without power. And, and, the, and his idea was that in order to experience freedom, you had to kind of level the playing field make everyone equal, so to speak. And this is obviously the, the, the start and the, and the birth of socialism and communism. But that was his idea, not just the thinking and the think, therefore I am, but that you know, we have to change others and we have to change these systems based on who we are. Now, the next section started another shift, although the next guy I'm going to talk about, Sigmund Freud, he really was building off of Rousseau. Rousseau, who said, you know, I, I, I'm born free, but everything else has changed, right? Sigmund Freud basically took it another direction. He said, well, that's true, 
But it's not just, it's not just our psychology that is now sovereign. It's, it's, our, it's, our, it's our emotional state as well. It's our sexuality. So he kind of building, building on Rousseau you know, had tons of theories about just the expression of, of your emotions and your feelings and of sexuality. I mean, the 1960s uh, sexual revolution was, I mean, the majority of Freud's stuff was already debunked by this point, but man, baseline stuff, that's what the 60s sexual revolution was all about. It was all about, man, this is an explosion of living out the freedom of our sexuality and so forth and so on. Like, it's a big deal, okay? And so we moved into an era of not just psychology, you know, is sovereign, but psychology and emotion, right, now rules over all of it. So our sexuality and our psychology, honestly, now even rules over biology in terms of what is sovereign. So you, you move from a, a, a very long period of time to get to where we are, and, and sometimes, listen, we, everybody contextualizes our current time in our own modern thinking, right? So you have grandparents and parents who are just like, I don't know how we got where we are, I don't know what's happening right now, you know? And it's like, yeah, I, I get that, but this has been happening for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. This has been a progression of answering the question, who am I? And so you have my generation and older who, you know, back when uh, Olympian uh, Bruce Jenner, right, declared himself to be uh, Caitlyn Jenner. And, and my parents, and, and, and even into my generation, just, we didn't have a bucket for that. We didn't even understand where to put that. We didn't understand that at all. But to our modern teenager today, that's not even a question. Like, of course, that's, of course that's fine. That doesn't, why would you even question that? So, so when we go to like, well, where, how did we get to where we are? We have to have a big understanding of this timeline that it did not happen overnight. Even again, we, we contextualize it and think that it happened, oh, since COVID. You know, no, okay? <laughs> COVID did ex accelerate some things, but no. Like, it's been happening for a long time, answering this question very differently through generations and centuries. Now, here's a great quote uh, in terms of expressing or at least describing our current state of expressive individualism. This is from Carl Truman. You can read this book and do your own research on this. Um, this is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I got this, from, this uh, suggestion from one of our counselors. It said, modern-day formula formulations of identity, the self, right, have yielded a paradigm of personhood that is often weaponized for psychological, sexual, and therapeutic triumph. Do you know what that means? It means that, that understanding of self has all of a sudden been used to this place of like, Eureka! You know, like, I figured it out! Like a triumph! Like, we finally got to the end of the rainbow and saw what was there! He says, therefore, any claim then that would threaten one's self-chosen sense of self-conception... Sexual freedom and therapeutic needs is not only improper, but possibly criminal. Because it's being, being shared as this triumph, this, this self-realization of self, you can't necessarily disagree with it because now it's seen as completely wrong. How, 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 how dare you say that they can't, that this man can't be a woman and, and feel like they're born in a woman's body and so on and so on. Like, how, how dare you say 
that their relationship, you know, in the same-sex relationship is, is wrong. Like, how, how could you possibly think that? We're not talking about biblical people. We're just talking about culture. Culture's like, like, you can't say that. You can't come against something like that because it is the eureka. It is the end of the rainbow. It is the thing we've finally figured out. And the way we've heard it ter- termed, especially in Christian circles or conservative circles, is, is a battle for truth. Right? A battle for truth. I'm not your head if you've ever heard the people talk about the battle for truth, you know? The battle in which truth. I want you to know that has nothing to do with what news station you watch. Okay? Or who you follow on social media. Or what influencers you read. Like the battle for facts is not the same thing. The battle for truth looks like this, especially when it comes to what's being called hyper or radical expressive individualism. It is whether or not you are going to lean to the side that says that truth is and can be an absolute. It's an absolute, which means that it can be measured because it's external, and it's objective, and it's fixed. Everybody with me? Like, that's, that's what truth is. Or it's relative, meaning that it's internal. It's subjective to how I see it or how you see it, and it's fluid. And this is, the, this is where we are today. Again, COVID did accelerate some, express, some hyper and radical expressive individualism in our culture. But, but what most people are seeing on the surface is just a battle for truth. But that's what they mean. A battle for not just a truth source, but an understanding and an approach to what is true. And yet Jesus himself told us, right? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You cannot get to heaven except through me. You can't get to the Father except through me. You, can't, you cannot pass go. Do not click $200. You all know with me. Like, like, there's no other way. Why? Because he actually claimed to be the embodiment of truth. We talked about it last week with the cornerstone, that the word of God was Jesus in flesh. That he, that they, when we, we say, is it the word of God or is it Jesus? It's both. Because that is, that is what he claimed as truth. But this idea, guys, of looking inside, looking internal to find truth is not new, okay? It, it's not something that just changed between the 400 B.C. and 1600, and it's not new. It goes back generations upon generations. Matter of fact, we see the prophet Jeremiah telling, telling the people, now listen, the Israelites had gone so off course at this point. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, okay? If you're ever feeling super happy one day, and you feel like you need to get a downer, go read Lamentations, okay? Just go read Lamentations, all right? So he's known as the weeping prophet because he basically was crying out on God's behalf to, to a, a group of, 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 of God's people that just weren't going to listen. And here's what Jeremiah said in terms of looking eternally. He said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And the answer would be, God knows, Right? He knows how bad it is. And that's the verse that you'll oftentimes hear quoted or gone to. But it's really interesting. If you back up a few verses, Jeremiah actually qualifies this verse by helping us understand what's at stake when we look internally 
for truth. He says, this is what the Lord says, cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. He says they're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in barren wilderness and uninhabited salty land, right? This is, Jeremiah's basically way of saying like, like when you put your strength and hope in here, when, you, when it goes internal, like there is no real hope for you. It's like the shrub in the desert and the, barren, the salty barren land. Like there's nothing. There's no strength there. There's nothing there. But then he goes on to say what? But blessed, blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence, right? External. They have made their, the Lord their hope and confidence in life. It says they're like trees planted in the riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered, right? By the heat or worried by long months of drought, their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Right? Meaning that, not that it's all rosy, like even in the drought, even in the, you know, the dry winds, like, like there's a tree that can still remain green. There's a, there's a system and a way of, of understanding who God is that you're blessed when you put your hope in Him. Your confidence is in Him, not in you. And, th- and in that way, you never stop producing fruit. Never stop producing fruit. All right, I'm going to take us down another rabbit trail a little, little bit more. I want us to look at, now that you understand a little bit more of expressive individualism and why it's, why it's become an issue, not just in our culture, but why has it become an issue in the church? Why has it become an issue in our faith in terms of deconstruction? All right, so I'm going to use this, this awesome new glass board that got built for me by Mr. Tony. Thank you, Mr. Tony. And uh, Mr. Randy, yeah, it's awesome. And uh, for those that were here a couple weeks ago, I, uh, oh, I just lost that one. All right. I won't be using that one. Um, let me do this one. Um, yeah, there we go. For those who were here a few weeks ago, uh, I think it was before Easter. Um, listen, I'm not drawing any more sharks, okay? No more bloody entrails, all right? There were people all, all upset about my last drawing. That's actually why we did this, because we wanted something bigger that would work uh, for, the, uh, for the video. So let's go back to... Uh, again, our building blocks. So we start with, this is the cornerstone, right? The Word of God. The Word of God. And we have our building blocks. We have our theology. We have our doctrine. And we have our practices, right? And then, oh, yeah, and then we have um, our identity. This is where we are Christians. I'm going to put it on the screen for you as well in case you can't read my, my scribble, all right? So what happens? Well, our expressive individualism shows up right here. This is our expressive individualism. It's, it's who we are. It's how we answer the question, who am I? It's what we believe is true. It's what we feel. It's what we think. It's... Um, it's based off of everything around us that, that gives us the context to our lives. And this is where I told you guys a while back is that deconstruction starts with the internal conflict 
between what maybe you hear people say, what you read in Scripture, what you hear from the church, what you hear from someone else, and maybe in your family. It starts with an internal conflict that just says, I don't really feel that way. I, I don't really think that's wrong. I don't really agree that that's, that that's how God is. Does that make sense? So it starts there. Why? Because our indiv- expressive individualism is always going to be something that we're going to battle with. You know, that's why he says the battle with our old flesh and self is never over until heaven, until we're glorified. But this is where deconstruction starts. It starts with us kind of moving ourselves in this direction. We, we basically say, oh, okay, you know, this is, we want our theology and our practices and our doctrine to better align with how we feel, with how we think. So, so we'll start deconstructing. We'll start going, well, those practices don't make any sense. And why would we do that? And, and those things don't make any sense. And why would we do that? And that, that, you know, the way those people see God, that just doesn't make any sense. I don't feel that or think that. Regardless of what scripture they pulled out and regardless of what they did, like, I don't feel that way. And so we start trying to deconstruct our, our, our narrative, so to speak, towards changing kind of the, the building blocks of our faith. Here's how Paul uh, says it to Timothy. He says, a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Right? They will reject the truth and chase after myths, right? Okay, we're not talking about QAnon, right? We're not talking about just conspiracies. What does chasing after myths mean? It means that we're, we're starting to chase after anything that aligns with my expressive individualism. Anything. We'll go after any, any way of seeing God to help me sort this out. Any way of practicing out my faith to help me feel this. Any conviction or belief to do this. Now, the problem is, is that that alone has not been enough because, let's all be honest, we all have preferences, right? We all have preferences. We all have, you know, you know we've all been raised a little differently. Our d- doctrinal background's different. Our theological sometimes is different. Like, we've all, we've all got different backgrounds, heritage, sometimes countries and cultures, like we all have those and they all play a part in our expressive individualism. And it's hard to get into a conversation with somebody and be like, well, I don't really believe that or I don't really think that. And, and it's, and you know, as well as I do when it's just you, right? It's just you. And all of a sudden, you know, people around you are just like, ah, whatever, you know, that's just, that's just Tony, you know, not you, Tony, but yeah, just, you know, that's just what, well, you know, that's just them, so what has happened is that we as a culture and as people grew into the place where no longer did we need to lean into our expressive individualism to deconstruct like this because it wasn't as effective. We created social ideologies. What do you mean? Well, we're the most connected 
global, you know, between the internet and everything. Like, we're the most connected people on the face of the planet. Do you know how hard it is for me to find someone else, if not a thousand other people, who like the same weird junk that I love? You know, with me? Like, like I, I don't have to just lean into what I'm feeling. There is a group of people. There is a culture. There is a social acceptance and common good and grace of somebody out there that thinks the way I think that aligns with this in me. And when that happens, it's no longer just a personal preference. Now, it's a source of truth. Now, it's just modern thinking. It's just modern values. Now, it's just the way things are. Here's the way Paul described it, and this is going to be our verse that we're going to read together. Um, this is the one marked in green, Romans 1, uh, 18 through 25. We're just going to read through a few verses. I want you to read along in your own copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, there's always uh, Bibles right for you, right there in the doorways. Uh, that's free for you. That's for our gift to you if you don't have a Bible of your own. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. It says, I want you to pick up on some of the words here that Paul uses. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God. We read this verse last week. They know the truth about God because he made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky, and through everything God made, he can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Verse 21 says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even say thanks, even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, Eureka! Everybody with me? They instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result... They did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies, and they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. I think what Paul is saying clearly, we would struggle with today. Because most people would never come to a place of deconstruction and say, you know what? I'm going to trade the truth for a lie. Right? I'm going to trade the truth for a lie. No, we don't trade the truth for a lie. We just insert an, another truth. We just insert a common set of, well, everybody believes that. Everybody thinks that. Everybody accepts that. You know, we, we trade this for this. And we then start to, well, now I want this to influence how I see God. I want this to influence my belief system. I want this to influence how I practice and live out my faith. 
right? The social norms, the cultural ideas, the conforming to the patterns of this world, like that's what this is. But we're not, no, 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 no. There's still some scripture in there. Tiny little, tiny corner right here. There's still some scripture in there. The problem is, is most of the time, scripture is pulled out, out of context, distorted, to where you can't even really recognize it anymore. But it's not a truth for a lie. It's just another truth. Isn't it convenient that that other truth just lines up perfectly with me? With how I feel and how I think? And what I think is right and wrong? Isn't that amazing? And here's the tragedy. Here's the tragic part, guys. This is the part where we, we have under... I think we have underestimated what this was going to do to our culture. Not just in terms of, our, of culture in the world, into the Christian church, into the church of God. We underestimated what it was going to mean. And here again, here's what Paul says. This is Paul to the Galatians, specifically about them kind of struggling through something very similar. He said, you were running the race so well, what held you back from following the what? Truth. It wasn't God, right? For he's the one who called you to freedom. It's not God who's tripping you up. He's not the problem. And he says, this false teaching, he's talking specifically about the law of circumcision and other things that they were dealing with. He says, but you have to understand this false teaching, the stuff that gets in there is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. See, we underestimate when we choose this to be our primary cornerstone or building block, how much this is going to affect how we see God, how much this is going to distort and affect how we believe and our convictions, how this is going to affect how we live and the practices of our faith. Like we don't... And then we end up with a version of Christianity that to people all over the world boggles their mind because they have no idea what the modern church, the Western church is thinking and how they got here. All of a sudden... It's not our, individ- our expressive individualism anymore, no. All of a sudden, when we, when we trade the truth for a lie and it just infiltrates our faith, well, then we can be whatever kind of Christian we want to be. See, we, we put an adjective in front of the noun. Right? So we don't just have to be a Christian. I can be a conservative Christian or a liberal Christian, or a progressive Christian, or a gay Christian, or at least an ally of the LGBTQ Christian. I could be a, a black Christian. I could be, to pick a culture or, or a race, I could, be a, I could be any of these things. I could be a traditional Christian. What are they saying? They're saying, you know what? This is what I really want to be, but I know enough about God that I, I know I need to be this. And I don't know if you know this or not, but going back to grade school, this is something that uh, one of our partners here at Journey, she sent this to me like a month ago. She had no idea I was teaching on this. And she sent this to me a month ago, and it was a pastor out in Colorado who basically was walking through a very, very similar exercise, and he said, look, here's the problem. 
If you guys remember grammar school, the adjective, right, it informs or modifies the noun. That's what it does. It informs or modifies the noun. And so here we have a generational Western church that has been modifying what it means to be a Christian for many, many, many years, and it's only getting worse, that the other countries in the world are sending missionaries to us. It's a tragedy. And it all comes back to how we answer what is true. How we express that in answering the question of who am I? We just sang a song today. I am who you say I am. Really? You really believe that? Or are you adding an adjective to your noun? I mean, let's, let's face it. It's easy to do. We can figure it out. We know what we feel and think. We can find a group that supports it. A collection of Christian, other Christian-minded people, quote-unquote Christian, by the way, quote-unquote, that screws our theology, our doctrine, our practice up so that we can be whatever we want to be, Christians. And now I'm going to give you a preview of next week, real quick, as we end. This is one of the reasons we encourage you to even change a little bit of some of the words that you might use to identify who you are. Because when it comes to, oh yeah, this is, this is another verse in Proverbs 21. People be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their heart. This is just a way of, this is just the scripture's way of telling us we will not fool God. Okay? We have not, we have not fooled God. We cannot mock him. We cannot continue to put adjectives in front of the noun and think that he's going to be okay with it. Can't do it. Even though we think we're right in our own eyes. But this is the building blocks we're going to be going over for the next couple of weeks. Oh yeah, this is, this is another great quote I forgot, but back in the 1800s, again, following that old timeline, Soren Kierkegaard was known as the father of existentialism. I mean, he researched who am I till, you know, more than you ever will. And he eventually had a, became really kind of a theologian. Now, understand, he had some really whacked out views of God. I'm not saying it was perfect. But he became somebody who, again, kind of moved back to that place where, most, where all Christians have been from the beginning of time. He said, this is one of his famous quotes, and now with God's help, I shall become myself, meaning that I, I finally got to the point after study, after study, after study, after research, after research, that I can't figure out who I am without him. So here's the preview. Here's the building blocks for where we're going. Not only do we start with the cornerstone like we talked about last week, not only do these things matter, because we're going we're to hit on this in the next couple weeks in terms of how do, we, how do we find that theology and doctrine and practices, how do we rightly examine those things, but the, the cornerstone has to be our, 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 our starting point, but the, the ending point has to be a follower of Christ. A follower of Christ has to be. It cannot be an adjective Christian. That can't be where we're headed 
or, it's, or I'm telling you, it's, you're not going to reconstruct a faith that comes out on the other side of this thing stronger. Here's how Paul said it to the church in Colossae. He said, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. They thought themselves to be wise, but they were fools. That come from what? Human thinking. But watch this. And from spiritual powers of this world. You guys know we have an enemy, right? You know there's spiritual powers in this world that is also at work against those who want to follow Jesus. So don't, don't let anyone capture you with these things rather than from Christ. Why? Here he goes. In Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body, so you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. The only thing you need is to be a follower of Jesus. I'm telling you, the word disciple, that's what the word means. I would so much rather in today's modern age with such confusion around what people think they mean when they say Christian, I would so much rather you identify, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. You know what what changes about that? When I've had some conversations with people who, you know, have struggled with the whole gender fluidity conversation, they've struggled with same-sex attraction. Like, I'm like, I, I get it. I understand that there, there is a struggle. And I've, I've talked with people who claim to be gay and, and, and are trying to live out their faith. There's a difference when they approach their faith as I want to be a follower of Christ. And as a follower of Christ, now I want to deal with what I feel. I want to deal with what I think. Does that make sense? There's a very big difference. I mean, again, we have secondary doctrinal things that we might not agree on and other things like that. It's fine. But, but if we claim to be followers of Jesus, like our complete identity is in him, then you and I are going to talk about secondary doctrine stuff. And even if we don't come to the same page, we are not going to be not in unity. Why? Because we're followers of Jesus. That's what matters. But the moment... Being a conservative Christian matters more because you put the conservative agenda ahead of your faith to be a liberal Christian, to be a gay Christian. When those things start to happen in your life and in your mind, you may not say it out loud. You don't wear a badge. I'm talking about when that happens inside of you, you need to do some work on your faith because I need to know what you're building it off of. Show me the biblical math of how you got to where you are. Show me the lines of how you got to where you are, adjective Christian. So that's all I want you to work on this week. Okay? As we, we're going into, again, we're going into the building blocks of what a follower of Christ looks like. We're, we're going to go into it. I want you to do some serious reflection as to your identity in Christ. Because I'm telling you, I mean, when you hear the stories of country after country sending missionaries to America because they don't want you, they don't want the Christians in America influencing their people. 
with this garbage. It should break your heart. We want to be followers of Christ. In Him, our union with Him, we can have that completeness that we need. We don't have to add anything to it. We don't have to add an adjective to our faith. Let's pray. Father God, I just... um, I'm so thankful that your word is what transforms us. God, with a lot of um, just knowledge and historical timelines and philosophers and facts today, God, I just, I hope and pray that your Holy Spirit is at work through this, that it is you and your word that is actually the thing that's going to transform us to be more and more like you. God, I know we have to know where we are in this world. I know that we have to have a good understanding of what's at stake and what's happening. But God, it is your word alone that we build our faith on. And I pray that as we all leave here and just examine our faith, that God, we would confess, repent, when we've tried to add adjectives to you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.